welcome to Various Things. My name is Gary Lama, and this week we're talking with Mo Karn, or Mo Carnage. Mo is a anarchist and a activist here in Richmond, Virginia. I've known Mo now for a few years, and I've found Mo to be a very interesting person. Mo has run Richmond Food Not Bombs for a few years now, and is a member of the Wingnut Anarchist Collective in Southern Martin Heights here in Richmond. Today I'm talking with Mo about a variety of issues. Uh, we've broken up the series into four parts, uh, roughly about 10 minutes each, um, so that it can be uh, enjoyed a little easier than sitting here for 30 minutes. Enjoy. Okay, so I'm talking with Mo Karn, Mo Carnage. Um, what was it that happened that got you to realize um, that the world uh, was something that needed to have people working to actively make it better? Um, I really wish I could pinpoint um, a really specific moment or you know, thing I saw, but I've sort of, weirdly enough, always had that sort of a sense, um, even from when I was really little, and neither of my parents were super politically active. The only thing that I can really think of is that I would always, like, sit at the grown-up table and listen to them talk, even before I could contribute, and sort of hear them complaining about a variety of things, and I think that that sort of affected me from a really young age. Um... And I have, like, a, my, I have a grandma who's really into sort of, like, civic and community work. And so I, I was just sort of, I guess, inadvertently exposed to people having serious conversations about the world's issues and have always been, like, pretty sensitive to that. Huh. Pretty sensitive to the suffering in the world. So it's, it's kind of coming from a place of, um, like, you're, you're using the word grown up. So th- this is this is something it, it it seems like that you believe is is a, kind of almost like a responsibility or something. Am, am I, I I mean I think so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, right. I definitely have that like that weird Protestant ethic problem. <laughs> oh, okay. Where, you know, like sort of like growing up in that environment where you sort of feel like there's a sense of, you know, are they supposed to do X, Y, and Z and that's not always a healthy thing. So that's something I've like worked on over the years to not have, but I've definitely always had this sense of if you exist in the world and you have the ability to make things better, then it's, it's your job to do so. I mean, because we were, we were rescuing dogs and that kind of stuff from when I was really little. What, with your family? Uh, yeah, we always would find stray dogs or um, we'd always adopt dogs from the pound and find dogs. My mom had a really soft spot for animals and we even had like a rescue course at one point, <laughs> so I guess that maybe is part of it as well. That, well, that's cool. I mean, a lot of people tend to, um, you know, think of uh, civic action or something like that as something they would volunteer with or volunteer to do. But in 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 your life, you've tended to create things, create mechanisms, create vehicles to do these things yourself. Um, and then bring other people in to get involved. Um, mm-hmm. Where do you where do you think that impetus uh, is? That something you think you picked up from your parents and and, and doing the dog rescue, or is um, was there something else about that that appealed right. to you? 
Well, I, I guess I've just, like, always been pretty, pretty independent, and I grew up, like, in a rural area with not a ton of people who were similar to me, which is, you know, that's a big deal when you're a little kid, but once you start to be in your teenage years, and you're like, wait a minute, there's no, there's no punks in Hanover County. Mm. You, you get sort of used to doing things on your own, mm. and even when you're younger, you know, it's, your parents don't have you sit around playing video games. You just go in the woods and figure out things to do, and you start your own projects. So I think that I always... I was just very much used to doing things on my own. Um, never did like group projects, <laughs> which is a, a selling point for being an anarchist because you have to actually learn to work with people um, to do actual community work. But I think that's probably why I've always been involved in like starting things. You, you identify yourself as an anarchist. Um, yeah. When did you come across that ideology? It was sometime in my 15 to 16 year old age. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I can't really pinpoint it exactly. I, and I'm not sure who first sort of like gave me the idea, but then that was sort of when the internet was a, a useful tool, but a really new tool. And that was when I started um, doing my own research. And like, I remember looking on InfoShop and stuff like that when I was in high school. And that was where I started learning about all the different ways that like current um, anarchists were involved in activities. That's why I first heard of Food Not Bombs and found out there was one in Richmond. So I was doing a lot on my own in this, you know, in this context of being sort of like an isolated from these cultures teenager, um, mm. but then sort of seeking it out, trying to find people who thought more like me. And you mentioned Food Not Bombs. You now are, or at least for the last few years, you you and uh, the uh, collective members at your house have um, run basically the Richmond uh, version of that. How 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 did you get into that? Um, I think it was my friend Constance from high school. We were both the uh, two new students that were like uh, what's the word scholarship kids from Hanover County in sixth grade, and we were both like the tomboy queers and. Mm. Um, we saw each other, like, on the first day of sixth grade, and immediately were like, oh, you're going to be my friend. And um, I don't know how Constance heard about it, but I remember that Constance and I went to Food Not Bombs together um, when I was 16 in, in Richmond. That was when I was cooking in this church up on Northside. We were still serving in the North Park. Um, and my dad really hated it and thought the communists were going to brainwash me. <laughs> my mom was always sort of more, um, a little bit more comfort with her opinion. Mm. So she insisted that my dad go with me one time so he could see it wasn't crazy communist. But then he still thought it was crazy communist so I wasn't allowed to go. And I had to sneak out. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Having to sneak out the food nut bombs. That's interesting. Yeah, um, city council meetings. <laughs> say what? At city council meetings. I also had to lie and say I was going somewhere else and then go to do the living wage campaign at city council. Really? What, yeah, what, was, the, what, what was the opposition to city council? I think that I probably didn't even ask them, you know, at that yeah. point, because if they were against Food Not Bombs. So, I mean, it's, I mean, it's interesting. Parents are interesting. We all know that. Um, but, yeah, my dad, he has some sort of, like, knee-jerk uh, conservative tendencies mm. that ultimately I think he knows are irrational. But, yeah, to do avoid that. And it was a lot worse in high school. I think he's, he's come around a lot more over the years. So okay. I'm trying to avoid conflict. <laughs> what year did you start taking that over and kind of running um, it? It was, it was in the, it was January of 2010, 
mm-hmm. that we finally had like the wing at house renovated to the point where we could put those speed up bombs. And at that point, it had been at a house on Hanover Avenue for a little over four years. And it, I mean, it's a lot to have at your house every week, you know, for yeah. years and years. So they were they, the people at that house were you know, ready to get a little record from And so we we took it over. We took over hosting it in 2010. And we hosted it continuously until November of 2013. So almost, I guess, three full years. And now we're doing it on a rotational basis for every third month it's here, but it also spends a month at two different houses, which is actually a really smart way to do it because it um, makes it not so overwhelming for any one household, I think. Well, you know, that's that's one of the things that I've noticed, and at least in Richmond, is, you know, maybe it has to do with the size of the community, but obligations tend to be put on one person and run by that one person for a while. And um, my understanding of Food Not Bombs is that's generally kind of how it's worked. It, 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 it's been maybe one or two, maybe three main kind of like people that are willing to host it. Yeah. Um, and it would kind of stay within that kind of uh, maybe network of people. And then it would get to the point where they were not able to do it anymore and then it would move to somewhere else. But it's interesting that it's been consistently, it's, it's, it's been being done here since what, 1994? Is that right? Yeah, I think January of 94 is the official date. I think they started organizing in 93, but like served for the first time in January of 94. And somewhere along the line, you also started doing the Virginia Food Bank. Is that correct? Yeah, that was in the, I want to say the summer of 2010. Okay. And so essentially what you ended up doing was um, you were serving as kind of a a serving point for the food bank. Um, How did you get involved in that? Well, I got in touch with the food bank because that was when there was like sort of an excess of Food Not Bombs volunteers. And so we were looking at, and also everyone who lived, you know, at the Wingnut and Barton Heights. We wanted to have, like, an anti-gentrifying effect and do as much as we could to offset any um, sort of gentrification we might be bringing to the neighborhood by doing solidarity with our neighbors. And so I tried to get in touch with the food bank to see about just getting, like, produce donated so we could do another day of food not bombs, like, during the week or something, just sort of see what the possibilities were. And it turned out that the food bank requires you to be, like, an official 501c3 nonprofit um, to work with them on all of their programs except for this one. And so the one that they don't require you to be a nonprofit is the mobile food pantry. And that's where they bring this huge truck to the neighborhood and we organize, you know, how people get the food and spreading the word and all that. But um, ultimately, it's the distribution of, like, really about two bags of groceries to 200 households in our neighborhood. And now we've been doing that for over three years, I think. And it's not weekly, it's monthly. But So we've just been doing that as the wing that not a tune up bombs, sort of like when it turned out that what the food bank had to had available was a little bit different than that originally. So yeah, it's a really great program and um, it's really popular with the neighbors and a lot of, I mean, most of the people who come out and like volunteer to help do the distribution, like pack all the bags and everything, are people from the neighborhood. We have like a really steady crew. And then afterwards, we do deliveries to like, like 15 to 20 um, elderly or disabled folks in the neighborhood as well. Wow. How do you feel about working with that kind of 
structuring as an anarchist? Because I, I know the times that I've seen you do it, you've got like, uh, I think, who is it, uh, Kroger? Or at least the, the times I've seen it, they had like a truck maybe they had donated to the program. So you're, yeah. you're, you're working with essentially big companies that are kind of donating to this. Yeah. How does the anarchist view in operation kind of work with that? Well, I mean, I think that I was actually talking to someone this morning about this, that we, if you're an anarchist or any sort of like radical or even like optimistic person who, who is fighting involved, like in the struggle for a better world, we're stuck in this, this sort of dichotomy between balancing out the reality that we live in and also wanting to live in the world that we wish we had. And so it's this constant balancing act of compromise because you know, there there's no way to be 100% principled. You have to, like, sit on a rock and starve yourself to death, I think, right. um, to avoid making compromise on the capitalism. So I think that, for me, it's a, it's a way to directly support the neighbors, and I'm not quiet during the event about critiquing the large corporations um, and the weird decisions that they make. And I think everyone knows that, you know, the food bank is a less-than-ideal, like, I guess, mechanism for helping the neighborhood. I mean, the corporations, what they get from it is the tax write-offs. Um, and I, I guess, like, ultimately, they're going to get those tax write-offs whether or not I boycott them, you know? Right. Um, and, 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 like, to me, it's, it would be sort of shooting myself in the foot and shooting my neighborhood in the foot to boycott, you know, using this food bank program because then they wouldn't get any food. We'd have, like, 400 bags less produce in the neighborhood every month. And well, people need that food. We'll end here for this episode of Various Things and continue on in the next episode. You can find more information at our website, variousthings.org. These interviews were conducted March 15th, 2014. Here with various things, interview with Mo Carn, Mo Carnage. Um, continued on from episode one. Here is episode two. Enjoy. One of the things that I found interesting is when I talk to people that are idealistic people that are making change in the world, they find this line where they can do good that brings forth the change they're ultimately looking for, while Mm -hmm. simultaneously not just eschewing everything based on some extensive purity um, Mm -hmm. of belief. And, you know, I've... I I can I can uh, respect a person that's got that purity of belief, but at 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 the same time, there's a area where that purity leads you know at the ultimate conclusion of you kind of just sitting there doing nothing because yeah. everything's kind of contaminated, <laughs> and so it, it kind of becomes almost it, it can be this almost like rationalization to do nothing. I, I think. Mm-hmm. 
the hard thing is to face um, these things that you don't agree with idealistically and work towards the goal you do want idealistically and figure out where those paths can cross with the least amount of damage being done. You know, and that's a fine line. There's always going to be people that make mistakes in that realm, you know, and probably uh, (laughs) might work with one company and decide, oh, you know, they're going to violate this or contaminate that. Yeah, that's... I think for me, it's like really obviously the right choice when we're talking about solidarity with people who are who are oppressed and are not anarchists. Right. Because that's the problem with like the people who who'd rather sit sit on their butts at home and complain about the world as opposed to doing anything to change it because it would be a compromise. Is that there's no movement building happening there, and mm. there's there's no reason for anybody, you know, from you know, any sort of oppression or working class, et cetera, anybody who's sort of, like, getting stepped on by capitalism, they're not exposed to anarchist thought in any sort of positive light. And and a, you can't just preach to people and expect them to convert. What really, I mean, gets people convinced that you're coming from a good place is acts of solidarity. And sometimes that means, you know, being involved in campaigns that are, that are not completely insurrectionary and radical. Like I was thinking about it yesterday, the like the fast food workers um, mm-hmm. in in Virginia are organizing the fight for fifteen dollars an hour. And in that article, actually, that my friend Comrade Black wrote, sorry, that was, um, you know, he was saying, "Oh well, I, I want all those companies to go away and be burned down." And it's like, I want that too, but I also know that we don't have enough anarchists at this point in time to destroy capitalism and make all of the McDonald's get burned down. And the only way we'd ever get anywhere close to having enough anarchists is by supporting the people who are stuck working there, you know, working to make their lives better and becoming friends with them. Um, and, but it, it, it's a back and forth. Like you say, you don't want to support, if, if you, you can end up doing something and realizing that the company you're inadvertently supporting is totally fucking evil and you're uncomfortable with it. Um, and that's valid. And also, like, I think that what's also valid is that not everybody is going to is going to feel okay with every type of sort of compromised situation. There have been some people who lived at the wing that who like totally fucking hated the mobile food pantry, and it like made their heads hurt. It made them upset. They really didn't want to ever have to do it just because, for whatever reason, it it wasn't their thing. You know, it didn't get them going. It wasn't it didn't light their fire. And I'm the same way. It's like lobbying, you know, mm-hmm. lobbying for law reform. I think that, again, it can be valuable because it it prevents, you know, a certain amount of harm from happening in the short run while we're waiting for these more long-term, bigger solutions. Um, you know, if it saves five people's lives today, well, I'm not going to say that that's not a good thing. But what I do know is that that's not sort of a tactic that I can be involved in because it bores me to death and I will just avoid it, you know. Well, so you got to find so- where you're effective and what exactly. keeps that passion for you too as well. Exactly. Maintaining the passion because that's a huge thing with anyone fighting for a better world is that it can be really daunting how terrible the world is and that's why people get burnout. You know? Let's so talk about it. that for a minute if you if yeah. you don't mind. Um, sure. So right now um, you know, I, I've been working with uh, my spouse uh, with Mindful Liberation for a while trying yeah. to get address mental health issues and at a certain point we reached a kind of cross where we realized that one of the biggest 
need based clients of our services. We're actually activist organizers. Um, mm-hmm. we, we started getting a lot of stuff, I mean, mainly from the community we were operating in, but we're just activists. We're starting to really, really, really get burnt out. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think there's an interesting, um, thing of if you believe that the world is a place that needs change, you're generally going to have kind of a depressive view of that world and that society. Um, And being the outsider in that, seeing as it needing change, uh, it kind of puts you into um, an almost alienated position. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of ripe for depression, um, especially when you're uh, like like you are putting a lot of work into not only that idea of um, feeling you know you, you have the normal thing for the the activist person that would feel kind of ostracized maybe from the society and that your goals don't or their goals don't meet up with what you want to see but also in that a lot of your work is going into um, trying to change those things and mm-hmm. so, you know, these activists end up being more prone to repression. And right now there's a huge, one of the, one of the biggest movements I've seen towards what's called, or at least what the activist community is, is calling self self care and this kind of thing. Yeah. yeah I know um, from talking with you in the past that that is something that you've definitely had doubts with of <laughs> dealing with um, burnout and um, how have you managed to kind of combat that? Well, I think, one of the first things I did that was really useful was sort of sitting down with myself and analyzing the activity that I was involved in. Mm-hmm. And then sort of not, I didn't exactly like list out the pros and cons, but consciously think about, you know, which project was I involved in that I liked that, you know, like that re-energized me, that sort of gave back to me. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to which ones were just really draining for whatever reason. And I eliminated participation in ones that were just like, not doing it for me. You know, ones where maybe I was putting in more than my share or more than I should have and not getting anything back and so it was just sucking up my time and energy and brain space unnecessarily. Um, so I stopped doing the things that were just like just really not my cup of tea basically. Because it, it can be really easy to feel like you have to participate in X, Y, and Z things to like get your activist label or something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're just like, oh, yeah, anarchists always do free bombs and the really, really free market and critical mass and this and, you know, and you could have a list of 20 organizations that all anarchists are supposed to do, but good Lord, <laughs> I hope that nobody gets stuck doing all 20. So figuring out sort of what you're good at and what, what gives back to you, I think, is, is really important. How hard was it for you to make that change? Because I, I know... In some of these areas, you might be one of the the people that is really leading it. How hard is it if you come across something that's like very draining to you, that is really sucking the life out of you, but it won't go on, maybe at the the strength it will. Yeah. If you're not well, participating in it. That's how- I mean that's something that's hard to negotiate, sort of. But telling because sometimes you step back from a, an activity and nobody steps up. Mm. You know, and, and sometimes the stepping back is something that I think in all activist communities people need to do because if you're stepped up too much, then you become a leader inadvertently. Yeah. Um, and so the stepping back is, is I guess, intended to, to make the space for other people to take on different roles in the organization. Mm-hmm. And it is really, really hard if you feel like you step back, but people 
and then no one steps up and then you worry because you care about the organization that is going to falter or fail or not do so well. So I, I think that the two things around that are like, one, actually communicating about your stepping back mm-hmm. uh, because, I mean, communication communication and behaving off of fear, I think, are the two major human problems. Um, <laughs> and I think that if you can if you can communicate to other people who are involved in the wider community that maybe isn't involved, that you think this is an important project, but for whatever reasons you have to remove yourself from it or give less of yourself towards it, then hopefully that would at least let other people know that now is the time for them to to be able to take a higher level of involvement. Um, I mean, and the other thing is, is that sometimes you just have to ignore it, <laughs> which is, you know, terrible, but sometimes you just have to do what is necessary for you to, like, mentally survive. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes that just means trying to not think about that maybe, you know, maybe food not bombs isn't happening that day, or maybe the really, really stream like it falls apart. But, you know, sometimes it has to be okay because... If, it, if, any, if any project was really that dependent on one person, then it probably wasn't going off that well in the first place. So. That, was, that was an interesting thing you said about most people operating off of... What, about fear? What was it exactly you said? Well, I think that the two major human problems are failure to communicate effectively and operating, making decisions based on fear. So it's assumptions based on fear? Yeah. Because there's no communication, the right? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So with you doing these kinds of things, I've noticed with most people that are activists, especially in a small city like Richmond, there there tends to be a kind of um, backlash against people. And you have taken a lot of flack from a lot of people. Um, How do you go forward with these criticisms because sometimes you know with every criticism you kind of have to sit down and like be like is there any truth to this and you definitely don't want to um just get in the business of writing off criticism um because that you know if there is a indicator for personal change in oneself it can come from that. It might be mean-spirited or it might be, you know, maybe a little bit of misdirected, a little bit of projection or, you know, a problem that someone's putting in. So it might be stated a little too strong or, you know, maybe maybe not strong enough in certain instances or something. But, um, well, how do you incorporate that criticism in your life or do you? Well, I think that... I mean, there's for years and years that like the like the wind that as a whole has gotten like I guess it has gotten like the shitty like anonymous criticism from yuppies who are mad because we're not yuppies. Mm-hmm. Um, and like so there there's there's sort of like whenever you get some sort of criticism, A, I think most people agree that the the anonymous internet version of criticism is the type to be taken with like a whole fucking container of salt mm-hmm. if used at all because it's such a fucking, like, toxic wasteland. Um, and especially, like, on news stories and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The sort of, like... You're talking about, like, comments article. and that kind of thing? So, like, the comments section on, like, a person has a dispatch article or something like that. Okay. Um, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot of worthless stuff from people who don't know you in real life. And that's the kind of stuff that you really shouldn't be taking personally and also, I think, can be effectively looked at by going, 
you know, these are the people who should be mad at us. You know, like if, if, if you're doing political work, there's always going to be this large demographic of people who are not the people you're doing the work with or for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're the people whose lifestyles are going to be challenged by what you're promoting. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, they're going to be the ones who are coming at you with all kinds of accusations and name calling and that sort of stuff. Because what you are about, like, the things that you do threatens their fancy lifestyle. It's, like, legitimate that those people would be freaking out because of that, um, because they feel a challenge and they don't want to have to deal with it. But I think the times when you have the criticism that's, like, coming from, like, within your community, that or within, like, you know, the like broader broader community, um, you, like, you do want to, like, not dismiss anything entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it is okay to dismiss things temporarily for, like, your own mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, like, a certain point of, like, people just being assholes that I don't think anyone should be subjected to, and that, and, and that, as much as, Lord knows, I will probably tolerate apologists for saying this, but you cannot realistically expect a, per- a perpetrator of any level of, of like, crime or violation, um, you know, from emotional to physical to, like, feeling or random. You can't expect people to, like, successfully change into a positive direction when they're, if you're completely tearing them down and apart. Um, mm-hmm. I think that it's very difficult for mentally unhealthy people to be able to create positive change while, like, they're being held down sort of in that. Mm-hmm. Um, like, so I think that that's why, like you said, you don't want to just dismiss it, dismiss any criticism 100% because there might be grains of truth in anything. And even if there's not, it's like hearing someone else's problems can sort of help you reflect on your own life and think about how that relates to you and that sort of thing. And we'll end here for this episode of Various Things and continue on in the next episode. You can find more information at our website, variousthings.org. These interviews were conducted March 15th, 2014. Various things. This is episode three, talking with Mo Carn, Mo Carnage. So the interesting thing about you and your work is, um, at least to me, was uh, where most people are working more idealistically in the realm of like working with other activists to uh, like, let's say there's people that are running a bookstore kind of for other activists. A lot of your work isn't actually for other activists. It's actually for your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the time that I've spent with you, I've noticed that you're making real change to the people in your neighborhood. And some of that criticism that you have received is from the people 
who are in that neighborhood in more of a, I guess, gentrifying position. Um, mm-hmm. Like they kind of bought their house, maybe speculating that it would, oh, well, look, we got this great Victorian house for pennies on the dollar. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, they want to turn it into yeah. something else. But yeah, like your your work, you've actually managed to be a white person that is in this generally African-American community um, and actually build a sense of community there. Like, like I almost think like the wingnut itself has like two, two different cultures. It's like, there's the activist culture of people that come for, um, you know, like events and this kind of shit. But then there's also like the day to day culture of like, families and kids stopping by and you working with them on the the food pantry and stuff. And I'm wondering if, um, is that the kind of thing that you would like, you think that most activists should be doing like working with people outside of that culture? I think, yeah. Well, I think that if you're only working with people who already agree with you, then that's stupid. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, I don't think there's much of a, a chance for creating change and movement building and that you're not going to get people in your community or neighborhood to respect you or to like take the time to talk to you about a larger political issue if you're not involved in some way in your community. And like that stuff isn't even like, it shouldn't be radical, but it is, you know, like actually valuing community and participating in your community and like talking to your neighbors is like totally radical in this society at this point. Even though, like, actually, that's just, like, some old-timey country shit. <laughs> mm. So it's, it's funny that that's, like, such a big deal um, when it's kind of, like, really tame. But then the... But because of that stuff, you are able to... Um, you you have to, over years, build relationships with people um, to, to get people involved in political issues. And it, it creates these windows of opportunity for, like, part of discussion. If I just set up my you know, my um, podium and tried to preach to people about the stadium being wrong, nobody nobody would give a fuck. They wouldn't know who I was and they wouldn't care what I had to say. Um, But, like, because I know people in my community, every time that there is, like, the more activist side of thing, like a protest or whatever, Mm. people will, like, see it on the news and people ask me about it later. So it's, like, this great avenue to, like, create this room, I guess, for conversation that otherwise I don't think would be there. But because people know me, and, you know, like they know us, they see us on the news and they want to ask what that was about and then all of a sudden you're having this great conversation about, you know, the racist stadium plans or whatever the case may be. I think that engaging in your community is something like that activists should be doing. I also sort of feel like it's something that humans should be doing as a default. <laughs> well, you know, that's interesting because, you know, of the people that get into the activist community through punk rock and this kind of thing, getting into it as at a certain age, they might get into it because like, this is my family and this is my safe space. And so they only kind of want to really work with like-minded people. They don't want to go outside their safe space. Maybe they're not ready to, I don't condemn people for doing that. You know what I mean? Like there's, yeah. there's definitely that, um, like you, you kind of got to have your family, your tribe, this kind of deal. Yeah. Like there's a mental health aspect in there. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's definitely this kind of activism as a lifestyle thing that is, has, has come to. And so there's, there's almost two different sects almost of like the anarchist, um, 
punk rock kind of influenced activist community. One being um, the ones that kind of debate theory to themselves and, <laughs> and kind of like feed themselves. And the others that are working more as the traditional activist of um, working with people outside of that community. And you're definitely in that latter box. Um, and I can, under, I think, I think I can understand also why those two groups can sometimes be attacked because the, the purer, um, an ideology kind of filling, um, feeding and working within their own community does not require working with people that like it and, and some of the issues that you probably take on where you're having to work with someone that, I don't know, like maybe they're a religious group. Um, yeah. and, and you might, as a per as a personal standpoint, be like, Oh, I don't like religion. It's the opiate of the masses, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's a tool of oppression. But simultaneously it might have, um, it might be with a group that actually has a interest in this particular activity that you're, um, working with and it, it might serve society better if, if y'all work together. Um, yeah. that, that seems to be something that, um, that, uh, you know, needs to be done and you're definitely doing it. Um, so in all of this, you've gotten a lot of shit from the police. Um, you've got to feel like a loss of personal security. Like I've, you've, you've told me stories about being pulled over and, and, and police obviously knowing something about your previous whereabouts. Um, yeah. I, I think it was one time you got pulled over and they were like, uh, you know, you're in this, you know, quote unquote, bad part of town. Why don't you have your gun on you or something like that, which kind of yeah. reveals that they knew maybe more than perhaps they should have at that point um, from their interactions with you. Um, how do you, how do you deal with that? Um, I guess my main sort of strategy with that has just been to be as open and public about any police harassment because mm. I think that, like, police harassment, police presence is, like, a super scary thing. Um, and it, it, it creates fear. Like, their power in our society is fear. And I kind of try to do as much as I can in my life to, like, reject or seriously question decisions I'm making based around fear. Mm. Um and so I think that doing the opposite of, like, what they desire or something different than what they desire is a great way to approach it. So if they want me to be scared and, like, hide in my bedroom, et cetera, then maybe that, that's not what I should be doing. That's not in my best interest. So sort of trying to figure out, you know, what way of going public with it um, makes sense. Because, yeah, I mean, we live in a very police state. The Internet's not private etc. You know, if they want to black bag you and take you away, they can. Like, so sort of, I guess, I guess I've uh, come to terms with that <laughs> reality. Mm. Is like, if, you know, if they want to do something to you, they can get away with it. They've done it to all kinds of people throughout history. Um, all kinds of people involved in all kinds of political movements have faced, like, police and state repression. Um, so you can't stop it if it's going to happen. So it's, like, not an effective use of your brain to, to worry about it too much. <laughs> right. But you're still human though. You're still going to have that. <laughs> I mean, do you, do yeah. you, um, I guess I should kind of fill folks in if they don't know, uh, there was a thing a while back where, um, 
probably about three three years ago, um, you had done a FOIA request. It was completely legitimate, and uh, they accidentally <laughs> gave you some information that was not in any way, shape, or form open by FOIA um, for them to release. I mean, they they screwed up and released it to you, and and you had gone ahead and uh, posted it on the internet like you're legally allowed to. And uh, then they demanded it back. At, at one point, they were actually did, did they actually sue you? Were they suing you they for were, that information? They were trying to. It was that they, it was a they sent me like a I think a like a subpoena or a cease and desist order type of thing that was like for a court date where they were going to try to like force me to return the documents. Mm. Um, so that was I mean, and that's sort of thing. Like if you can manage not lose your head initially, you can find a way to like to get get the situation that looked better, I guess. Because um, in that case, the the documents like that were, you know, demanding that I go to court or they were over it, they made the really stupid mistake of saying on the document that they needed the documents back because I was an anarchist. And I, like, knew immediately that that was some fucked up illegal shit. And, like, just kind of, like, laughed all the way to the ACLU. <laughs> That's interesting because I, on, on more than one occasion, you've actually been personally attacked using the word anarchist as some kind of legitimate it, it being used by the person as what they're hoping or thinking is a legitimate reason why you shouldn't be doing something like i remember uh <clears throat> when the police response to um the state capitol uh during the women's march um when a congressman was it was a state state senator or someone was asked why they were there and they basically said they they were there in that uh, capacity because I, I can't remember if it was specific or alluding to the it was the, specific specific that the wingnut was going to be there and they were known anarchists or is, is that guns. what they said I think that we were known terrorists with guns oh okay that we were like a terrorist organization I can't remember the exact quote but yeah We'll end here for this episode of Various Things and continue on in the next episode. You can find more information at our website, variousthings.org. These interviews were conducted March 15th, 2014. various things with episode four of the interview with Mo Karn, Mo Carnage. Enjoy. So you personally, you identify um, gender-wise as what? Uh, gender queer. I like okay. to pronounce they, them. And you're an anarchist. The one thing that you have managed to do is be pretty open about these things, like uh, stating these things, uh, your preferences and these kinds of things very publicly. Um, has that caused you much backlash? I, I mean, it's kind of, it kind of has caused me more backlash from people in the activist community. Really? Than the larger community, almost, I would say. Yeah, because there's a... I mean, there's, like, this 
this like predominant fear within like activism in general that if that like the A word scares people away. Um that the word anarchist is scary and that we should like not use that word to describe ourselves because then we'll be like ostracizing or alienating, you know, like working class people who otherwise would have our backs. Um, and I've always found that to be like a really fucking like condescending and patronizing way uh-huh. of thought. Yeah. That undervalues the fucking like minds of working class people or whoever. Right. Um, but there's a lot of people who who are either too scared to use those labels or think that the labels are too scary for other people to to like process. Um, yeah, and I've always disagreed with that. I mean, I guess some context is like I was doing Amnesty International like the whole time I was in high school, you know, like dealing with um, political prisoners abroad and death penalty prisoners in the state. And then in college, I was involved with like the pro-animal liberation movement and like face like harassment and persecution from the administration and we're pretty sure the FBI um, and like did a lot of work around supporting political prisoners from the animal liberation and earth liberation movement. So like I kind of came into being back in Richmond with a very strong understanding of exactly what labels the government likes to use. Um, Mm. And so I would prefer to use those labels to show how absurd they are. Mm-hmm. Um, when the government uses them as opposed to hide from them. Because if you hide from them, they'll still call you an anarchist. They'll still call you a terrorist. Um, I think it's better to like point out how absurd they are and that that, in the end, is better PR for the movements than trying to hide. Mm-hmm. Right now, we've got the city trying to pass this, um, essentially, the mayor's idea. Mm-hmm that he kind of created probably with a small group of people of mm-hmm. what would be the greatest idea for the use of the, the um the uh land in the bottom, which was mm-hmm. a area where they had sold people into slavery. Mm-hmm. Um and then we also have almost a similar situation, very similar situation where a decision is being made to try and p- privatize um Monroe Park. Yeah. And both of them are kind of being held in these faux public discussions where they're, they seem more to be going through the process of, yeah, we'll have people come down here and speak, but their decision, their minds seem to be already made up. Right. Um, dealing with this kind of thing, it, it kind of forces us into the situation where we realize that there is something of an oligarchy here. Oh, yeah. Um, maybe not in the grand operational scheme of the day-to-day city thing, but definitely in these specific scenarios, there is there are people with interests, and there is people in the government, the local government, that are you know working to get what they want while almost seemingly ignoring the interests of concerned citizens. How do you think people in this city can address this, like almost? blatant disregard for their concerns like effectively yeah um I mean unfortunately I'm pretty sure that with both of these issues it's really going to come down to like a huge public information like educational campaign partnered with 
a ton of civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm pretty sure, like you said, you know, they, they brought these ideas to the table, but it wasn't like they brought a couple options to the table. And the stadium and Monroe Park, they came to the table with just one set plan. So it's obvious they've already made up their mind. Um, and like you said, the public comment sort of <laughs> periods are are pretty, like, transparently not for the public. Um, it, even, even to the point where city council this whole year has been violating their own rules and regulations in terms of how they run their meetings and stuff. Mm. So they're, they're, they're not actually interested in, in public input around these plans, it seems. Or, like, there are a couple of council members who probably are, but the majority are not. And, and so I don't think, unfortunately, um, unless we get a couple more council members on our side, I don't think we're going to win these before they get passed. And I think that we're going to be, you know, having tried the petitions, the reform, the lobbying, the showing up to the official meetings methods, we're going to have to move on to a new set of tactics. And I feel like it's going to take, like, a massive um, occupation of Monroe Park and Monument Avenue. And I think that it's going to take um, a ton of civil disobedience where they're trying to build a stadium. People have already come out at city council um, to state that they're prepared to, like, chain themselves to bulldozers and stuff and get arrested, and I know that um, the defenders are actually working on compiling a, a list that will be made public of everyone who says that they're willing to go and do this to get arrested to stop, you know, the construction of this baseball stadium. So, if, yeah, if we don't win it before these things get passed in council, it's, people aren't going to give up, and it's just going to be a matter of trying to expand the fight, maintain the self-care and the support for the community, and get more people involved. And the opposition to the both of these things are really coming from almost a cultural divide between the plans being proposed and what the residents of the city actually want. I mean, yeah. one one example kind of of this happening in the past was the the opera house being built. Yeah. Like, was it the performing arts center or whatever? Yeah, like it. I don't feel like that's something that serves the interests of the residents of the city very much. I think it serves the interest of like the residents of Chesterfield County and Henrico, maybe just like the baseball stadium would. And and, you know, there's two aspects to look at this. There's there's one of like, okay, well, if you did want to go through with the baseball stadium, make counties pay for it. You know, Uh, (laughs) like make them contribute to it but ultimately um with the park there almost seems to be almost a more classist kind of overtone especially in the articles that i've seen dealing with it um and sentiment um monroe park being a place where um food not bombs has served food since 1994 um Mm -hmm. the park is has has been a place for homeless people to congregate um, longer than that, um, and it's one of the reasons that it was chosen in that place. And I, I, I feel that the reason that the homeless uh, congregate in Monroe Park is not because Monroe Park is there, but because there aren't fifteen other parks, <laughs> that there aren't fifteen other places. You know, you, most cities have more park than we do of similar. Si- most cities of similar size have this, um, and I, I, I see it. Almost in the, like I see what what's happening at least in that respect as 
kind of like the worst case scenario where you've dwindled your resources down so low that the idea of sweeping something under the rug really actually seems possible because you don't have 15 other instances that you could do it to, you know? Um, And so these people actually feel like they can get rid of that. And, um, and, you know, that is not going to be the case, but it's, it's certainly in line with how the city has treated the homeless population with moving um, uh, the daily planet from its original location and uh, mm-hmm. this kind of deal. Something that hasn't, I haven't heard activists using this word to describe it, and I only really thought about it the other day, and I think you're pretty well-versed in this issue, is that the stuff that we're fighting is kind of like still this neoliberal push. Um, yeah. Like oh, said, yeah. It is, it is this oligarchy. It is this differing values, but because we're also talking about the privatization of public goods and money and resources, I think that tying it into this larger issue of neoliberalism is, like, an important factor to consider. And, you know, at least in considering, like, what's happening and why and how neoliberal things have been, like, fought in other places and that kind of thing. Well, you know, the, the, the definition of neoliberalism, I'll mangle this here, but essentially it is to privatize public infrastructure. Neoliberalism is ultimately put on this idea that private capital can mm-hmm. handle things better than the public. And yeah. I guess for an anarchist, this is a weird area to get into, because when you're saying public in the United States, you're talking about held in the public trust, which is generally done by the government. Right. Versus a profit corporation that's, uh, you know, might be publicly owned or might be private, but it's for profit um, holding this land, not as a trust, but as a property that at some level, they're going to have to make decisions based on income and and Mm -hmm. what makes it, an economic function. The one thing I see about the government owning that land, the city government of the city, is that it can sit there and do nothing for 30 years. And that's great. Like, I mean, because that's what a park does. It just fucking sits yeah. there. You know what I mean? That's great for a park. If you're trying to have a for-profit park, yeah, th- there's just a whole realm of horrible things that could occur. I mean, I think if it goes into private hands, it's not going to be long before it's turned into an amusement park that's charging some kind of um, uh, admission fee or at, at worst case scenario until there's shops on it or it's just sold into development for buildings. Um, yeah. And the one thing that I haven't seen in this plan is any kind of binding agreement for any amount of time or term that this will be kept as a park. I I guess the one other aspect is like the privatization that is maybe just like super obvious and that's why we didn't say it yet. But it's just that you are, aside from the homelessness issue, is like the huge history of Monroe Park as a site of protests. Mm -hmm. Um, As a site of protests that didn't have permits, you know, and didn't have to like meet certain qualifications to happen there. And that in the whole like Mall mollification of public spaces, you know, like the public commons now in many places is like the mall, <laughs> um, is that we, we lose that constitutional right of free speech. And you and I both know that that right is an illusion to some point or another, depending on like the cops you're dealing with, but we still don't, we, there's no like requirement for any 
private company to allow that at all. They don't even have to pretend like they give a shit. Oh, that's true. I, I learned that sure. firsthand when I was 16 and I was at a mall with my friend and uh, he was wearing a, a shirt by the band The Ex-Cops. Uh-huh. And it said something like, fuck something or something like this on the back of it. And I remember they asked us to leave and my friend was like, it's free speech. And I looked at him and I was like, dude, we're on a fucking mall. I don't think that works here. Exactly. And they're like, nah, it doesn't work here. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that, you know, that is something that I, I've kind of talked about before with this issue. Um, yeah. that is, that is probably the scariest, um, mm-hmm. realm of it because yes, there is that, that strong, uh, public history. I mean, with with both the Occupy movement here in Richmond, as well as uh, uh, multiple instances it goes in the back past, sixties in the seventies, they were a protest back then that I didn't even know about. Yeah, and and the whole history of actually American free speech mm-hmm. has always occurred um, in some realm of publicly held land. I mean, even like what MLK's. I have a dream speech. That was the national mall. Um, Yeah. And it's because you, you can't just kick someone out for some arbitrary uh, decision made by the owner. Like there, there has to be some kind of process. And generally most speech issues aren't worth that process. Um, So, yeah, that that is that is that is a that is a very scary thing, and um, if, if this park does become private, there yeah. really is going to be nowhere outside of sidewalks. Yeah, to congregate. There really won't be. I mean, I have for years said that like I thought Canal Plaza was like the worst substitute for Monroe Park. Mm. Um, like I was against the Occupy movement being there and. Generally, any protests that are there, I feel like, are low, low visibility. And yeah. I feel like that's an issue that I take with it. So, yeah, there's there's no other park of a comparable size and, like, convenient and also visible location. There's just not. Um, so it, it would, the loss of that park would be, like, a huge blow to tons of communities in Richmond, which is why we will never let it happen. <laughs> And that concludes part four of our four-part interview with Mo Karn, Mo Carnage. I'd like to thank Mo for taking time out of their busy schedule to talk with me. All of our interviews are available at our website, variousthings.org. This interview was recorded March 15th, 2014. Various Things is sponsored by Nobody because it costs nothing to make.